The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. If you are using the Bible in front of you, you'll find that passage starting on page 822. And once you've found that in your copy of Scripture, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, that would be excellent. Deal with that gun. (laughs) All right. This is the parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager... And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you sorry who will entrust to you the true riches and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money the pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him and he said to them You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, we are just trucking our way through Luke's gospel, seeing what Jesus has to say to his disciples. If you remember that uh, Luke's gospel, we've used this imagery. It's like a big sandwich. It's like a salvation sandwich, right? That's the language we've used where you see Luke come and he's talking to us and he says, hey, Jesus came to accomplish these things. That's like the very first like nine or so chapters on the front end, the very end of his gospel. We said like that's the back end of the sandwich where Luke shows us what Jesus did to accomplish the salvation he came to bring. And we said like the meat and the cheese and the lettuce and the tomato, all the stuff that's in the middle of that sandwich is him saying, okay, so like, what does that mean for, for everyday disciples? What does that mean for us? How should we think through what it means to pursue Jesus? And we've said that there's ways that Luke has been leading us to see that. He keeps giving us these certain questions which show us the certain kind of themes that he's talking about and the application of what that means for us. And we find ourselves in, in a very specific salvation theme. Someone has asked Jesus... Will those who are saved be few? Jesus' response, don't be concerned with the few. Be concerned with the you. Are you among the many who are going to be saved? And then he gave that command. We've been repeating now for several weeks, which is the command, strive to enter through the narrow door. And then Luke has been stringing together several 
teachings and incidents and parables about what does it look like to strive and what's the heavenly party going to look like for the banquet that Jesus is going to throw. This is Bible imagery that relates to salvation, talking about heaven as a banquet that's going to be filled to the brim. People north, south, east, west, people that you just never thought in a million years who would repent and believe and wholeheartedly follow Jesus are going to be there partying with Jesus for all all eternity and that's where we find ourselves this morning what's confusing about that and the reason why I recap that is because Jesus is now all of a sudden talking about money and it's just sort of like like where did that come from if you were paying attention I mean like Jesus is saying things like make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth like am I supposed to go and buy friends like what's he talking about Serving God, serving money, where is that coming from? Then all of a sudden he's talking about Pharisees and then he's talking about how they abused the law and then there's just that random verse thrown in about divorce and you're like, what on earth is going on? My hope is that by the time I get done attempting to expose to us the meaning of the text that you will see that this, like Luke didn't slip into like this area of just like, forgetting that he's talking about salvation stuff. And it was just like, yeah, we've got to throw something somewhere. Just slaps money stuff in the middle of a theme of salvation. I think what you're going to see is that there is a lot to do with a salvation idea as it relates to money and how money exposes our hearts. I think that's what you're going to see in regard to when Jesus starts talking about the Pharisees and their ridicule of him and the law and this idea on marriage and divorce, he says money has a way of just like a scalpel slicing us open and exposing our hearts, okay? So we need to pray. You need to pray for your pastor that I can actually do a good job in explaining this text. I would value your prayers in those ways. But also just pray for yourself. One of my favorite pieces of scripture is Luke 24 where it talks about how Jesus was explaining how all of the Old Testament points forward to him. Luke uses the language of that Jesus opened their eyes to see him and opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Seems like two very appropriate prayers for this morning, amen? So that's my encouragement is that we're going to press pause, we're going to pray, and maybe it's just a simple two-sentence prayer. Jesus, help me to see you in this text because I have no idea where you're at. What on earth are you doing, Jesus? And then the second prayer is like, will you open my mind to understand the scriptures? We start to get a little sweaty when the preacher man gets up and starts talking about our pocketbooks, but we're not doing that randomly. We're doing it because Jesus said now is the time to talk about money. And so we're going to talk about money. And so we just need him to open our minds and understand these scriptures, okay? So wherever you're at, I encourage you to go in prayer right now. We'll pray and we'll dive into the text. We'll see what Jesus has to say to us, okay? Lord, that is the prayer, simple, sweet. We need you to open our eyes to see you. Maybe the events of this morning, like forget about the past six days of this week like just this morning there has been enough life that has happened to where like we barely crawled into church today and everything is like a blinder preventing us from seeing you Jesus in your kindness would you draw near into the confusion into the hurt into the suffering and into the sin of maybe just this morning and give us eyes to see you. Spirit of Christ, I'm asking that you would open our minds to understand this text today and then to stir our hearts to rejoice at the invitation of joy, eternal, heavenly joy that exists before us in this text right now. Assist me to proclaim, Holy Spirit. Set me aside, as it were, so that as my words hit the ears of my Jesus family, that people would not see a man, but they would see the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you receive the glory and the honor this morning, King Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Sermon titled this morning, God's Money, God's Work. 
or you can say it like this. You'll hear me use this language this morning. God's money, God's agenda. And so this idea of what is God's agenda, we're going to talk about that. And then I say God's money because you're going to hear me say that Jesus is teaching us that really all of our stuff, possessions, material goods, the 401ks, the annuities, the CDs, the returns on investment, the cars, the clothes, the toothpaste in your house, whatever it is, it's really God's stuff. So it's God's money, and what does it look like to use God's money for God's work, God's agenda? And so the main idea this morning is that the Savior's people use God's money for God's work. That, I think, is the simple point that Jesus is inviting us into. And as you're going to hear me say at the end, is going to be this idea that it's not that Jesus is trying to guilt us into compliance here, but Jesus is extending an invitation of joy. It's like he's sitting here beckoning you, saying, man, there is, a, there is extreme joy over here for you, and I know where it's at, and he is wooing you and inviting you like a friend on the playground. Come on, like, let's go to the jungle gym. That's where all the friends are. And, like, we're hanging out here, and we're having, come on. And you're like, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's more fun to go stare at the brick wall. And then, no, 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 come on. On, man. I know where the fun is. That's what Jesus is doing today, believe it or not. He's inviting you like the kid on the playground to come and enter into joy by thinking about how your stuff, God's money given to you, can be used to advance God's agenda, okay? So ask this question. This is a good question. What is Jesus doing? I think that's where we need to begin. That's a question we're going to ask throughout. What is Jesus doing when he is saying what he's saying here? This is a good question to ask in any moment in time in life. Some of us have asked this in a variety of different circumstances. Some of us have asked the question, what on earth is Jesus doing? Because we have found ourselves in one of those like very grand, big, life-changing, like the, the trajectory of my life is being altered right now because of this circumstance or this situation. And you're like, Man, I don't see what is Jesus doing. Some of us have asked this question and maybe less grandiose ways but it's some of the bit more down-to-earth kind of ways like maybe this morning you got up you were just reading your bible it was a confusing passage and you're just like what what is jesus doing what is he saying here the fact is this question what is jesus doing it covers a lot of ground and it really is a great question because it helps us get at the heart of just what jesus wants us to learn it's it's a confession of humility is what it is i don't know jesus i'm positive you know what are you what are you doing what are you saying how are you working in this given situation now this question what is jesus doing in this particular theme section of luke that we find ourselves in it's not the first time we've had to ask this question right just go back to luke chapter 14 and in luke 14 we were forced to ask this very question what is jesus doing when jesus showed up at that pharisee's dinner party remember that he shows up at the party he begins to sit down and and unlike most normal guests begins to go like yeah you've invited all the wrong people and he begins to counter and correct the guest list then Jesus rolls right into this idea of beginning to address the seating arrangements at the wedding. And you, it was, we were forced to step back and go, okay, like on the surface of it, what, what are you doing, Jesus? Because it looks like you're just giving etiquette lessons. Like it's really wrong to invite these kind of people and here's what's right and it's really wrong to take the best. Like is Jesus like the wedding planner? What is he? Like what's he doing? Is this just an etiquette lesson? But what we learned was by asking the question, what is Jesus doing? We saw that Jesus was using these common situations to expose people's hearts. If your actions are such, Jesus knows that our behaviors flow from our beliefs and what we believe in our heart will work itself out into our behaviors. Jesus is going to ride the coattails of that truth right into the money train. What you believe about stuff that's been given to you to use will be manifested in your behaviors. And so we saw this, that Jesus is going to act in certain ways, like in the Pharisees' dinner party, and the echoes of this are going to be found this morning. Because again, on the surface, this parable of the dishonest manager, it just looks like Jesus is giving a lesson on money. 
But when we ask the question, what is Jesus doing here with money? This isn't like some first century version of Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Like he's just not giving us like, like hearty little things to make our ROI increase just a little bit. No, this talk, as I've said, is right in line with the question, will those who are saved be few, believe it or not? Even more immediately, this talk on money is tied directly to the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons that we saw last week. Remember, Jesus, just last week, Luke 15, has taught that God is searching for the lost. This is God's agenda. Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving the lost. Jesus is in the business of receiving sinners and welcoming lost, repenting sinners. This is what causes great joy in heaven. And so last week, as Luke said, when we think about this idea of will those who are saved be few and Jesus' response strive to enter through the narrow door, why should we consider these things as followers of Jesus? It's because some will hear about God's agenda and grumble. That's what we saw last week. Remember, the beginning of Luke 15 was as Jesus was like, come on, sinners and sufferers, you are welcome here. People grumbled in their heart. But now if you look in Luke 16, Luke gives us those little context words in the very beginning of verse 1, if you look in your copy of your Bible. He said also to the disciples. So here's God's agenda in the business of seeking and saving the lost one group of people sort of rises up and says, I'm not sure I like this agenda. That was the Pharisees. Jesus has addressed the Pharisees, and now he's turning to those who are like, yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm striving to enter through the narrow door of salvation and you alone. Wholehearted following, I'm all in. So Jesus is now going to help disciples, followers, those who are on team Jesus, so to speak. How should they relate to the agenda that God has in seeking and saving the lost. Jesus says, here's how you should relate to God's agenda of seeking and saving the lost. You should hear a story about a dishonest manager. That's the connection there of what's going on. In contrast to the money-loving, self-serving agenda of the Pharisees, disciples are to use their God-given resources to further God's agenda. That's what Jesus says. That's how we should relate. Thus entered the words of Jesus concerning money. Wholehearted following is an invitation, point number one, to use my possessions wisely. Use my possessions wisely. That's verses one through nine, point number one. This is what wholehearted following is an invitation to. So listen, if God's agenda is to seek and receive lost, repenting sinners in great love, then this is to be our agenda as well. That's what Jesus is teaching. Because his priority, the priority of Jesus, is to receive sinners, eat with them, his disciples, as his disciples, we serve his agenda. We further his agenda. We join in with his agenda by using our stuff, our wealth, earthly wealth, worldly wealth, wisely to that end. So notice in verse 1, Jesus sets the scene for this truth. Look in your copy of Scripture. Jesus begins to tell a parable. And remember last week we said a parable in a simple way to understand it. A parable is a story with a spiritual point. So there was a rich man who had a manager, Jesus begins. Charges were brought to him that this man, the manager, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. What Jesus is saying in the parable is that this manager is proving to be wasteful. Thus his master announces his dismissal. He's, he's somehow not handling these funds well. But this throws the manager into analysis mode. His actions have consequences. The consequences are coming home to roost, and his wasteful actions are about to leave him homeless, right? Has a good job, has a home to live in. His actions are now going to lead him to be a man without a home. 
What we see, though, is that he's lazy, he's proud, and he knows exactly what he's unwilling to do. So he says, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. But there is something he is willing to do, and that's where verse 4 comes in. Verse 4 is a big key into understanding what Jesus is teaching here about this parable. Because what this dishonest manager is willing to do, he says, is this, so that when I am removed from management, I need people to receive me into their houses because I'm about to be houseless, I'm going to take some action right now. And so notice that with decisive action, starting in verse 5, decisive action that has his future situation in mind, he calls in each one of his master's debtors and he says, guys, let's enter into an agreement. We're going to doctor the bills. And so he summons the master's debtors one by one in verse 5. He says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? This man said, well, he owes a hundred measures of oil. And so this manager looks at him and says, I want you to take down, take your bill, in essence, tear that up, and then I want you to write down quickly that you only actually owe 50 measures of oil. Then he looks to another debtor, and he says, well, how much do you owe my master? And he said, well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And so he says, okay, let's rip that baby up. Let's write a new bill. We're going to say your bill is actually only 80 measures of wheat. Now, the punchline comes in verse 8 that no one expects. Jesus, wrapping up his parable in the first part of verse 8, says this, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You would expect Jesus to say, now this master dropped the hammer on this thieving punk, threw him in prison, and he got what was coming to him. So here's the lesson that we can learn from this, guys. Don't be like the, the dishonest manager. But instead, Jesus throws this twist in and says, as the master is surveying the situation, he looks at the dishonest manager, and even though the guy's still going to lose his job, even though the guy's still going to be booted to the curb, he recognizes, like, this is one of the craftiest cunningness shrewd, wise, prudent, street-smart, dishonest managers I've ever seen. He took advantage of the scenario in order to secure for himself a better future. So instead of condemnation, the dishonest manager receives commendation for his shrewdness. Now, to be shrewd is just its a fancy word that just means to be wise, Shrewdness is that capacity to look at a situation, understand a situation, and handle it smartly. Maybe growing up in school, you said, man, that, that person, that guy, that girl has street smarts. Have you ever used that phrase of anybody before? Like, it's just someone who can just assess real quick, come up with it, like, hey, this is the scenario, this is the deal, we need to act, and so let's go get it done. That's what Jesus is commending here through the language of the manager. Yes, the dishonest manager is dishonest. The dishonesty, his lying, his sin in that way is not what's being commended, but it's his wisdom. Jesus says this guy's no fool. Dishonest, yes, but he's not a fool. And it's the manager's wisdom that's actually being praised here. Now, if you look at the end of verse 8, Jesus is done with the parable and you can sort of maybe picture this in your mind's eye. Remember, verse 1 says he's saying this to the disciples. So maybe he's been scanning the crowd. He's been looking them in the eyes. He's been weaving the story. The story is now done. And so he zooms in. He makes eye contact with his disciples. And he says this to them. Guys, what you need to know is this. I'm implying the parable to you. I want you to learn a lesson from the way the world acts as it relates to stuff. In matters of your stuff, in matters of your possessions, in matters of money, verse 8, 
the sons of this world, that is, unbelievers, people who say, my worldview is this, I live for me, myself, and I. Like they're not trying to live in a way to honor, honor God. The sons of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd, more crafty, more cunning, more wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, than believers are. So Jesus is just simply saying that like, when you just pause, step back, scan the world at large, what there seems to be is this disparity between people who are following Jesus and people who are not following Jesus when it comes to specifically the use of stuff. The unbelieving world, that's that language there, these, these sons of this world language is. He just says, listen, there, there's no shame on their end in trying to be wise with the use of their stuff to secure a better future for, for themselves. They're willing to strategize and use and be wise. They're, they're, they're seeking to not be frivolous with their stuff. They're seeking to use their things in ways that says, if I've got 10 cents in the year I want, 100, right? If I've got five sheep in a year, I want a flock of 20. Like they're, they're constantly thinking through, how can we use this stuff to grow, secure something better for the future? And that's the lesson that I want you to learn. So for instance, when push came to shove in the parable, the manager knew how to use worldly wealth. Specifically, he knew how to use worldly wealth to gain friends for himself, yeah? And he knew how to use worldly wealth to gain friends for himself and ensure a better future. If you want to just step back, there's a lot that can be said about the parable. We can at least say this. In the moment, job being taken away, manager says this. I need to be wise right now with the use of some stuff right now so that I can make some friends by the use of this stuff, so that I can secure a better future in particular for himself. And I think this idea, worldly wealth used to gain friends to ensure a better future, I think this is the lesson Jesus wants us to learn as it relates to our stuff. So likewise, disciples, this is who Jesus is talking to, they are to do the same thing, but with God's eternal agenda in mind. Okay? That's the difference there. That's why this parable, with its point of using worldly wealth to gain friends to ensure a better future, exists under the umbrella theme of strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is saying, I want you to think about how to use your stuff to secure not earthly friends, but eternal friends, so that through the use of your stuff, heaven gets jam-packed, full to the brim, bursting at the seams with people at the eternal banquet, and their eternal future has been secured and you now have a multitude of friends in heaven partying it up with you, feasting with Christ forever. Why? Because in the here and now, you said, I'm not going to use my stuff solely for my agenda. I'm going to use my stuff to make eternal friends so that they might have a better eternal Future. I believe this is what Jesus is saying in verse 9 when he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That phrase, unrighteous wealth, is a Bible way of just saying worldly stuff. So make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, worldly stuff. That is, use your worldly wealth to gain eternal friends who have their future well-being secure in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, be wise. Be wise in how you use your stuff. Be wise with your possessions in such a way that heaven's banquet is filling up because of your use of money here on earth. Now, what does this mean? Does this, is Jesus saying, is Jesus a killjoy right now? Jonathan, how dare you yesterday have gone to Pumpkin Creek Farms and ate more than your fair share of apple cider cinnamon donuts? That wasn't a wise use of your money. Jesus is frowning as I was smiling, eating donuts. Is this what Jesus is saying? How unwise of you 
foolish Jonathan? Tom says yes. Jesus would say no. I think Jesus disagrees with you, Tom. Uh, so, is, so is this what Jesus is after? And no more fun for my disciples. Is this what he's saying? I don't think so. All of us know this difference. We know the difference between saying my stuff is for me, myself, and I to make sure my agenda of having fun and having pleasure for me, myself, and I gets all the pleasure that me, myself, and I can get me, me, mine, me, my stuff, my things for me so I can amass stuff for me and my, and me, and I. Versus the Jesus, like the manager, has given us stuff to steward and saying it's not wrong to go and have fun. But... On the table is this reality that was overarching. I am also consistently thinking, strategizing, how can I use my stuff so that heaven gets a little bit more full because I've given my stuff away or I've shared my stuff with someone. I've given of my time, my talents, my resources so that someone can hear about Jesus, experience Jesus, know about Jesus. You can have an apple cinnamon donut at Pumpkin Creek Farms and also be totally in line with Jesus is saying here. We know that as a Catholic. Category. We also know the category of my stuff exists for me and it's my agenda that's going to get done. That includes Pumpkin Creek Farms, but that does not include God's agenda, right? We, know, we, we understand the difference here. Jesus is inviting us into the better path, the path of life where we do not serve our stuff, but we serve God by using our stuff, okay? That's what Jesus is talking to us here. The joy in this, the invitation to joy in it all is that those whom you served in this life through your wise use of possessions are going to be there in the next life, in eternal life, in heaven, surrounded. And then again, Jesus, I think, is using that banqueting table metaphor to describe the joy that is going to be had and experienced for all eternity where Jesus eats drinks and laughs it up and lives life to the full in complete honor and glory of the Savior. This banqueting table imagery is a beautiful Bible-based imagery about what heaven is like. And there's joy when we think about how the possibility of those whom we've served in this life through the wise use of our possessions will be there in the next life to receive you into the eternal dwellings, verse 9. The imagery that Jesus is giving here is that there are some that you are serving in ways that maybe you know and in ways that you will never know that will pre-arrive you into heaven. And so when the day comes for you to close your eyes in death and to open your eyes to faith being turned into sight, and as you are welcomed into the arms of the Savior, at least in my mind, it's like you're running down this big football tunnel of people. They're like, he's here. Yeah, she's here. She's finally here. And you're like, who are you? And you're like, well, you decided not to use your money in a selfish way. And you actually went and bought a box of little miniature Gospels of John's. And you sent them to the country of Uganda. And the tribal leader read it. And he was saved. And he, he shared it with the other people in the tribe. And we all came to know Jesus. And we're here because of you. Yeah! Jesus is like, that's joy in heaven over lost sinners repenting, and you can enter into that joy by saying, I'm just going to be wise with my stuff now. I'm going to be wise with my stuff right now. I'm going to be wise with my time, and I'm going to give money to the local pregnancy center, and maybe that helps a local worker be able to share the gospel and be a shoulder to cry on and a mama decides not to abort her baby and that little girl grows up in a godly home, becomes a Christian and marries a man and that man comes up to you in heaven and says, thank you. Thank you. Some of the most joyous moments of my life came because of my wife and what we got to experience here on earth and she is alive because you decided to be wise with your stuff and you gave to the local pregnancy pregnancy center you don't know I think that's the idea but Jesus says you do know this what does it look like to be wise now 
with the motivation of, I want heaven, the seams of heaven, breaking. I want people hanging off the light fixtures in the rafters in heaven. I want that party to be so explosively rowdy to the glory and the fame of Jesus. I want eternal friends for all of eternity so that heaven's banquet is full. And if that means I deny self in the now by using my stuff in a wise way, with eternity in mind, Jesus says, that's how we think about God's agenda as it relates to our stuff. Now, all of this presses home the extremely, extremely revealing question, a very hard question. And I think this is what verses 10 through 18 are about. It's this question, whose agenda am I serving? If this is the point of the parable, I think the next invitation is to go, okay, if this is God's agenda... And the invitation is use stuff to serve God's agenda, then we just need to stop and we need to ask, like, well, whose agenda am I serving with my stuff? I think that's where you go into verses 10 through 18. Or if you want to say just more precisely, whose agenda am I serving, right, with my possessions, with my, with my money, with the, the things that God has called me to steward? Is it God's agenda or is it my agenda? The fact is that all that we have been given ultimately belongs to God. That's a biblical truth. And Jesus' point is that our possessions have been given in order to further God's agenda, not our agenda. So in this way, we're like the manager of verses 1 through 2. We're called to manage these things, right? Every possession we have is ours on trust. So whether our worldly wealth is great or our worldly wealth is small, verses 10 through 12 show us that the call is to just to be faithful with what you have. Just be faithful with what you have. For some of us, maybe we can get caught up in the trap, right? We have little worldly wealth, and we're like, well, of course, Tom Cheshire can, can be, be wise with the stuff and just give it away. I mean, look at how much. Or the person over here is like, man, you know, notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems, right? Like, man, I just wish I had little stuff like them over there, because if I had little stuff then I would just be able to be more faithful because life is a whole lot. Of, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Listen, just be faithful with where you're at right now. Be faithful with what you have. Look at verses 10 through 12 in your Bible. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth, things of this world, your stuff, your possessions, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Listen, faithfulness to God's agenda, it's not a matter of how much or how little. Faithfulness is a matter of just being trustworthy with what you do have. It's being trustworthy with what you do have. It's just saying, this is what I have. What does it look like to ask God to help me to be wise with the stuff that he's been given, that's been given to me? So what this means is that faithfulness in stewarding God's money for God's work, God's agenda, it's going to look different for different people, right? For some of us who maybe our worldly wealth is big, the way we are generous and joyful and sacrificial, it's just going to look different from maybe the college student who's just barely making ends meet. So Jesus isn't saying like, well, come on, college student, look like the one who's who's been given the gift of stewarding large worldly wealth, and it's not meant to say, man, I wish this wasn't mine. You know, I wish I was just like this college student over here. It's like, no, 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 just recognize it's going to look different for different people, but the common denominator that Jesus is inviting us into is this common denominator of generous. I want to be generous with, with the stuff. I want to be joyful in the way that I give. I want to be sacrificial, and it's this generous, joyful, sacrificial attitude that says, I just want to use God's stuff so I can make eternal friends. What does that look like? What does that look like? But just because we know this, now here, here, here's where it comes home to roost, and maybe Brady's counseling calendar needs to get filled up here a little bit. All of us can say, uh-huh, yeah, we get it. But then all of us can go and look at our pocketbook and go, I don't know that my pocketbook gets it. You know what I'm saying here, right? We flip open the pocketbook, we go look online, and we're like, yeah, I, I know 
but my pocketbook sort of belies the fact that I know. And all of us in one accord said, we believe, Lord Jesus, help our unbelief. Because in a sense, our pocketbook says, yeah, I know you say you believe, but there might not be the level of belief that you think that you might have. Says the pastor has to get up and talk about this kind of stuff. It's easy to say these things, it's harder to do, and just because we know this is true, it doesn't mean it comes easy to us. Why? Because of verse 13, all of us are tempted to see God's stuff as our stuff. I worked hard, and I pulled the overtime, and I did the double, double shift, and I'm the one who decided to invest in that stock and be wise and pull out then and return investment for a long like I mean, I mean, like that was, this is my stuff, thank you very much. We turn money into a God, we make idols out of our possessions, it's easy to do. So using the language of verse 13, we're all tempted to believe we can serve two masters. Yeah, Jesus gets some of my time, but then also I'm going to come over here and I'm going to serve money. Do you see what that says in verse 13? No servant can serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one, love the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Do you remember a few weeks back when we said that those who strive to enter through the narrow door are whole-hearted followers of Jesus? Do you remember that? That was the cost of discipleship language at the end of Luke 14. Well, that truth is just simply re-emerging here, and now Jesus is applying it to your pocketbook, my pocketbook. The attempt to serve God in money is the attempt at living with a divided heart. Yeah, Jesus, you get some of me, and my pocketbook is going to get more of me when it comes to my loves. So Jesus is inviting us into the path of life where instead of trying to serve God and money, we instead serve God with our money. That's what verse 13 is an invitation to. Not trying to serve God in money, but serving God with our money. And that's the zinger of verse 13, isn't it not? <laughs> the zinger of verse 13 is that the way, listen, the zinger of verse 13 is that the way a person uses his or her possessions indicates whom he or she is really serving. That's what's so stinking exposing about money, is it not? We can say all day long, God's money, God's agenda. God's money, God's agenda. Then you reach into your pocket, you open up your banking app on your phone, and you go and you look at the debits for months and months and years, and you see very little of that reality in your checkbook. It's very exposing. I mean, this is challenging. Like, I, you guys just have to suffer through this for 45 minutes. I've had to suffer through this for the past six days of thinking through this. Like, it's exposing. Like, it exposes that your pastor's heart's stingier than he would care to admit. It exposes that I like having stuff, right? Like it's nice to have stuff. I want to have stuff. And sometimes I want to have stuff at the expense of being wise and saying no to self so that we can think about what it means to make eternal, eternal friends. But, but remember, Jesus isn't trying to screw you to the sticking post right now. Jesus is inviting us into something better. The zinger of verse 13 is that it exposes the challenge of money. That's verses 14 through 18. If you've ever been to a doctor before, and you go in with maybe some wound or some, I don't know, shoulder out of joint or whatever it is, and the doctor's like, what's wrong with you? And you're like, well, I don't know. There's just some pain back here somewhere, you know. And what does the doctor do? Maybe they start doing this. They start poking, and then they put their finger on the thing, and you're like, yeah, like, whoa. Like the wince from that, is the, why is the doctor doing that? Because the doctor delights some like sick pleasure from making people hurt? Maybe, I don't know. 
Um, sorry for the doctors out there, but more than likely, they're doing that because if you just are like, yeah, I hurt here, the doc- you don't want the doctor just to start throwing stuff against the wall and hope it's, it sticks. He comes and he finds where the pain point is and he presses on it. So you go, whoa, that hurts. And then he goes, now we can talk. We found the pain point, and the invitation here isn't pain point for sake of pain point. It is pain point so that what? Healing and getting better can come. I think Jesus is being a spiritual doctor right now, and he's doing this. He's opening up some of our hearts, and he's going, and we're going, yo, the pocketbook money talk from the pastor is very exposing to me. And Jesus isn't like, ah, good. I love to see him squirm at church on a Sunday. Can anyone turn up the heat and make those sinners start to sweat a little bit more? That's what I love to do. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is just inviting us into life, the path of joy. Now notice that some of these words from Jesus, they land on people in different ways. These words from Jesus, to some are the aroma of life, but some of these words land on people as the aroma of death. And then notice in verse 14 that that's exactly how the Pharisees receive these words about money. The Pharisees were lovers of money, says Luke. And they received the words of Jesus as the aroma of death and noticed that they ridiculed Jesus. They mock him. In the John Davis translation of the Bible, they're like, well, that's stupid. My money is my money, thank you very much. And I will use it how I want to use it, thank you very much. My money and my stuff for God's agenda is stupid. And they ridiculed Jesus. And just like that, the exposing challenge of money has revealed what these Pharisees really serve. Verse 13. They're the professional, we serve Godders. But money has just laid their heart open and said, yeah, but not really. You actually serve money. You love money. You love money more than you love God. You love pennies. You love power. You love prestige. You love the praise of men. Luke goes on to say is that in the exposing of their heart, look at verse 15, they sought to justify themselves. Why? Because they're in the business of justifying themselves before men, but God knows their hearts. The prize that's at the center of their heart, Luke says, that is actually what God hates. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And it's not just to do with money, Luke says, or Jesus says specifically. They are convinced, these Pharisees are convinced that they are on the side of the law and the prophets. That's why Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about the law and the prophets in verse 16. Jesus is exposing in their hearts that my talk about money, which has caused you to ridicule me, is exposing that you seek to justify yourselves before others and to justify your money-loving ways. And you seek to justify grumbling against God's agenda and you're seeking to justify why it is right for your agenda to trump and override God's agenda of seeking and saving the lost. And you think the law and the prophets are on your side, but it's the law and the prophets that actually condemn you. For instance, and this is where verse 18 comes in. Jesus pulls forward this truth about marriage and divorce as an example of God's law. And if you read in other places in the scripture, what you discover is that they were very happy to dilute what God had said concerning marriage and divorce. And so he says, for instance... Here is an example that proves the point. You dilute God's law on such things as marriage, divorce, sexual morality, but it's the law that actually accuses you. So it just needs to be said here that verse 18 is not the end-all, be-all, standalone comment on every aspect of marriage and divorce you have to pull in deuteronomy 24 you have to pull in matthew 19 you have to pull in first corinthians 7 to get a more robust picture jesus is just saying you guys think the law is on your side here's an example of the law 
you guys dilute it. It actually stands and accuses you, and this is just one of a thousand things that exposes how far your heart is from God. But notice that while the Pharisees are busy valuing what God despises, Jesus says in verse 16 that the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Jesus is standing there urging people into his kingdom. Guys, strive. Get in through that narrow door of salvation in me. Go. Bum rush the door. Sprint. Run. Don't walk. Get into the door. Get into the door. And the result is that there seems to be this crush at the door as folks are striving to enter eternal life through Jesus. Everyone's trying to force their way into it. It's not that people are like taking others out and like, you know, sneaking into the kingdom. It's no, if the narrow door is Jesus himself, while the Pharisees are saying, no, thank you, there are many who are saying, yes, thank you. And they're rushing into the door and they're like jamming and the shoulders are tight. They're like, we're getting in. We're going to get in. We're going to strive. And all of this just comes from one parable about a dishonest manager. So let's go back. We're landing the plane here. Let's go back to our opening question. What on earth is Jesus doing? Hear this. Hear this. If you've heard nothing, hear this this morning. On the part of Jesus, this command to think through, this call to think through, the wise use of your stuff to make eternal friends that fill up heaven's salvation banquet, this is not compliance by guilt. Please just hear that. Jesus doesn't want you to feel guilty for the next two weeks, so you go give away a lot of money, and then the guilt sort of tapers off, then you just start doing you again. That's not what Jesus is after. Rather, this is an invitation to participate in heaven's joy over one sinner who repents. So you go back into Luke 15. One sinner who repents, heaven's joy, the lid blows off, people are going nuts. Yeah, Jesus is like, that's life. Do you want life in the here and now? Like, sign me up on that list. Do you want joy in the here and now? Jesus says, hold loosely to your stuff. Have fun. Eat an apple cider donut. Go to Pumpkin Creek Farms. Buy a beautiful Christmas tree. If you can afford a house, buy the house. If you can buy the car, buy the car. If you need new clothes, buy new clothes. But remember, in the ecosphere of being a manager of God's stuff, say the overarching thing is this. My aim is to ask God with your stuff on the table as much as I desire the apple cinnamon donut. I desire to see heaven explode with eternal friends who I'm going to be partying with for an infinite amount of affinities. And I want that party full to the brim. What can I do with my stuff so that that just is a little bit more true? Amen. Lay your head down on the pillow. Enjoy the donut. And then be wise. Yeah? All right. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you to do these things in us. Again, we are not trying to do this. This isn't us earning our way into heaven. This isn't us trying to, to make ourselves right with you. This is just the overflow of grace. Jesus has saved us. Jesus has made us right. We want to be a manager of your stuff. Lord, this is just grace-laced, grace-fueled application to the pocketbook. So, Lord, will you just help us right now walk in ways that are in obedience to you? Will you just expose maybe where uh, we've got room to grow in these things or expose in our hearts where we uh, are struggling to believe that this is the path of joy, that if we go down this path that we're not sure Jesus will be there to care for us. Lord, help us in these things. Lord, we want your name to be made famous. We want your heaven to be filled full to the brim. Lord, would you give us a vision of joy that leads to obedience on our part. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.